Hello, everyone. I'm Prairie Prince. You're listening to Talking Blues, and uh, we are going to have a wonderful little discussion about my art and my music and the collaboration of the two with our uh, incredible hosts, Mako. So I was surprised in doing research. I was the first thing that surprised me was um, your name is not a stage name. No, no, it was a. If you want to hear the, a, a quick story, it was a, my dad's nickname when I was a little boy. Um, I'm a junior, so his first name is Charles. So his full name was Charles Lamprière Prince Senior. I am now Charles Lamprière Prince Junior. But when he was a little boy, his mother called him Lamprière, the middle name. And he had a nanny that took care of him. I took care of all the kids. I guess they, they had a bunch of kids in the family, and he was one of the smallest ones. And he, uh, this guy, he was an old, uh, an old African-American guy that took care of the kids. And he named my dad Prairie because he didn't quite understand, the, or, or he just didn't like the name Lamprière. He, he wanted to call Prairie. <laughs> So that's where the name came from. And when I was born, I got stuck with Prairie, uh, even though my full legal name is Charles Lamprier Prince Jr. Uh, I got stuck with Prairie. And, you know, I, I, I'm glad I have it now, but it was a little bit rough growing up being, you know, Prairie Prince, Fairy Princess, that kind of thing. I just wanted to be named Mike or Bob or well, you, Mako. Well, you, you wouldn't want Mako, I can tell you that. Um, <laughs> You, but so I've been very cringe my whole life, and you know I'm, I'm glad it's uh, it stands out as a pretty unique name. I've actually been um, uh, several uh, women that I've known over over the years have, have named their their kids Prairie. Uh, one or two of them were boys, and one or two were girls actually. Wow! And then a couple of friends named their dogs after me, Prairie dogs. <laughs> so I got that. Going. So your dad, I think, played the drums. I think he was a musician. Um... Not really, not really. He um, he started to play maybe like a snare drum or something. He played in a. Uh, uh, he used to play for silent movies with a, a piano player, and he would just tap on tap on a little old drum. I think it was like an old marching drum or something like that. He never really took it much farther than that. But he always was a great dancer, and he always loved music and uh inspired me day one to be you know I, I i picked up his rhythm for sure how did you so is it natural to think that you got the drums from your dad is that how you got into drumming i imagine i don't i mean i, I also had two older sisters that were uh, enough older than me that i was really young when they started listening to rock and roll 50s and so I was six seven they were you know 15 16 years old and they were just starting to play all that you know Elvis Presley and, and rhythm and blues all that rhythm and blues so that was in the house um, one of my sisters got me some bongos when I was little and so that was my first drum that I actually started playing on when I was six I think which and I just built from I just uh, I just always wanted to be a drummer <laughs> well, which came first, though? Your love of being a drummer or being an artist? 
Uh, well, I got to say that, so I've seen some of my early drawings, um, and I think I was doing both pretty much at the same time. I was, I was scribbling on the walls, and I was beating on the washing machine when I was three, three or four, three or four. And then by the time I was six, I got actual pair of bongos, and I started doing like a little neighborhood newspaper, doing illustrations of dinosaurs. For, with my best friend for our little uh, neighborhood newspaper. So I was just always in. My mother was into art. She's an art historian, and uh, she dabbled am in amateur painting and things like that. But she knew a lot about art, and so she took me to art museums when I was young and, and really encouraged me to learn about um, the history of art. Do you remember when art really connected with you? Like when, when you thought, well, maybe this is something I want to pursue? Uh, let's see, well, I, I think it was probably when I saw when I saw my uh, my friend painted painted flames on the heads of my bongo, my sister's boyfriend, and I said I want to be able to paint flames like that guy. So that was you know I was like six or seven years old. But yeah, before, you know, and then I started getting, getting into uh, that kind of thing. My mom was was drawing and stuff, and so I would draw along with her. So I was, it, was, it was really early when I was started to get really interested in it. Finger paint and all that stuff, you know. Body paint. I used to paint my body with watercolors and stuff when I was a, a, little, a little, uh, little kid and growing up in Phoenix, Arizona. It, it's kind of crazy that many years later, I mean, let's say you got inspired by the idea of drawing on, on the drawing on your bongo, and then many years later, you do drawings for Yamaha drums and do customized artwork on drums. Painting, yeah, for sure, yeah. Now, the drum head, uh, I painted many drum heads. I suppose that was the next thing. I'd say these were the heads of the bongo. So I had, uh, you know, I painted the drum heads on my first, first bass drum and uh, continued from there. I've been, you know, I've been painting bass drum heads for years for different bands and Journey and, you know, all kinds of different people um, over the years. And then I started to paint the actual drums themselves. Yamaha started to uh, commission me to do um, full drum kits for them to, you know, to put on display at, their, at some of their showrooms and, uh, and different clients that they had, different endorsers. Um, that used Yamaha would uh, would call out for a, a specialty and a custom paint job, and they'd call me and I'd do it. I'm working on one right now, a Craviato drum set. Snare drum I'm working on right now, but it's a uh, Johnny Craviato drum set. They're they're a, they're a, a beautiful company down in Santa Cruz, based in Santa Cruz. This is the snare drum I have. Just sort of drawn it all out. There's uh, five drums, and uh, you can see that. Or not, but there's just the drawing part so far, and uh, I'm putting portraits of all of the the people that work on the drums, on there, including Johnny, who's passed away now. But these guys still continue to make the drums, and they're just beautiful drums. And I also am working on a clear set, wow. uh, not a clear set, but a set by a company called San Francisco Drum Company. And um, I'm doing scenes of San Francisco all around the drum. <laughs> How would you describe your art? How would I describe my art? Yeah, like what 
if I say, well, what, what kind of paintings do you do? What kind of drawings do you do? How would you describe that? It's impossible. I, I do so many different styles. I, I would just call it eclectic. I have eclectic styles, wild styles. Um, and, but I also, you know, I love to delve into Renaissance style painting. There's a painting I'm working on now. Let's say, uh, wow. a, uh, it's a cop. Well, not a copy, but it's a, it's inspired by Leonardo da Vinci's painting of Jesus as the uh, of Salvador de Mundi, which is the savior of the earth. And it's pretty much laid out that the original one is is pretty much like this. But I put my friend's face on it. He passed away, he passed away from MS recently. And instead of, you see, here's the, here's what's rep represented as the earth. You see the, the it's beautiful. sphere, crystal sphere. And then uh, in the original painting, he's just, he's doing one of these, you know. Jesus is. But um, this was a stone I gave my friend on, on, basically on his deathbed in the hospital to hold and to think of think of life and think of his wife. So I do this painting and I'm, I'm going to give it to his wife. I hope she likes it. It's beautiful. I've been, I've been, you know, the guy died two years ago and I've been working on it off and on. And I keep looking at it and thinking it's not quite right. I'm going to work on it. Anyway, so that means this to a flamed drum set. How do you even, you know, how do you even put the two together? It's, it's, it's hard to describe. Right. So I, I guess I would say I'm pretty much wild style. I, I was just curious. Cause going, outsider, go, outsider, an outsider artist. Well, when I go on your website and look at the different types of things you do, it's, it is all over the place. But I just wondered if you had a description for what you do. Um, I would just say it's it's uh, it's the love of art, uh, the love of music, uh, com combined with with painting and um, sculpting, <sighs> viewing nature. I love nature. Um, I love people. I love portraits. I love um, anatomy. I you know I, I love wild style. I love hot rod custom stuff, and um, and it just uh, it engulfs my world. Is there anything that you can't draw? Like in your mind, if you said, I want to do something, I want to draw something, can you always do that? Um, I can always try. <laughs> yeah, and I do. I always try. Um, and a lot of times they fail. But, you know, keep working on stuff. Practice. Practice drawing. I mean, if you draw in a sketchbook at least two or three times a week or two or three times a day, you're going to get better at something, depending on what you're working on. Some people just do colors, color fields, and they finally find the right, the right, the right color. You know. I'm working on an album right now, but you can talk about that later. It's all about colors and passions. This is your own musical album? Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah let's talk about that. But I'm curious as to, let's say you in your late teens, you're already into music heavily. You're also into your art heavily. Um, you go to the Art Institute in San Francisco, or you get accepted later on into that. Before that, what were your goals? Like, were you hoping to be a musician? Were you hoping to be an artist? Were you hoping to be both, like you turned out? Yeah, I always wanted to be a Renaissance man. That's what they called people like that. And I guess it was in 
the artists were the musicians of the day. They were both, and they were the philosophers. They were all. They were everything. I mean, guys back then weren't. They were. They were leading. They were leading the charge. They weren't following people for the most part. And I think that um, someone that w- wants to grab onto all kinds of different uh, fields in, in their uh, with their personality of their personality and and grab onto them and, and learn little or as much as they they can about each one of these uh, things that, that you know encompass their their being. I think that's really important. And, I've always wanted to do that. Yeah, I've always I, I couldn't put down a paintbrush and pick up a drumstick without doing the opposite. But could you have? I mean, I would imagine you've done quite well in the world of art, based on the murals that you've done and the different things that you've been working on. Um, and and obviously in the music world, you have done quite well. Could you have imagined that kind of success? And maybe success isn't the right word for it, but a certain level of success that you've achieved, could you have imagined that that would have been a reality for you back then? Um, I always imagined that I would you know, succeed in something. I wasn't sure if it was going to be music or art, but I wasn't interested in much of anything else, like politics or, I mean, med- you know, medicine or uh, any other one of the fields I could have chosen. Originally, I kind of wanted to be a doctor to follow in my my grandfather's footsteps, and I started really enjoying drawing uh, the human body. Uh, and then I decided I'd rather draw it and paint it than actually dissect it. So I made that decision at least early, uh, you know, before I went to art school. Um, and um, I, I don't know. I just I've just always I've always done I've always done both, and I've always enjoyed to do both doing both. I don't know how successful I am as an artist. Something successful in my own mind. And, you know, I have a, a, a fan base that, um, who really are my, you know, they're, they're my sponsors, my fans. Uh, you know, I do work for my fans and, and um, um, you know, I play music for them. And I just, I couldn't do it without my fans, I think. So I gotta have a big shout out to all the fans, music and art fans that I have around the world for supporting me. Uh, you know, I don't have a gallery per se. I have a lot of friends that have show art shows and stuff, and I'm, I have collaborated with some few people, uh, with some different interesting artists and stuff over the years. But I would say I'm probably a little more successful, just maybe me a little more worldwide. Uh, widely known for my music and my art, probably. But I'm still young. (laughs) Some of my favorite artists are in their 90s now, so, you know, and they're still working. Well, what I thought was really neat was the fact that when you lived in Arizona and then you got accepted into the the San Francisco Art Institute, Mm -hmm. that the band followed you. The whole band kind of moved with you, so obviously they yep. they believed in your ability in the world of art and also your ability as a musician enough so that they followed you to San Francisco. Right. Yeah. Well, we were all living together, you know, off and on from high school to the next phase. Uh, it was a kind of a couple year period after we uh, Roger and, for example, Roger and Bill Spooner and. 
those guys were, and Fee were a couple of years ahead of me. And so they had already, you know, started junior college or something in Phoenix when I graduated high school. And so we, uh, and, and nobody really had, you know, had any, anything they were very interested in other than music. All, all people I was hanging out with. Michael Cotton was the only other person that was really interested in art. And he was, he was the guy that had hooked up with us and was doing our uh, light show. So he was our visual artist. I was doing all the posters, you know, like I said, the, some of the costume designs and all that kind of stuff. Um, and everybody else was working mostly on the music. So when I said, listen, I got I to gotta go to San Francisco, everyone said, we're coming too. We want to be, you know, we want to do music and sing. You know, San Francisco was such a great music town at that time, late 60s. Um, we wanted to be in, involved in that. I mean, Phoenix wasn't a bad place. There was a lot of good bands that came out of Phoenix, Arizona. But we knew we wanted, we set our sights a little higher than that. We wanted to you know, get exposed more to. Well, we loved the San Francisco scene more than the L.A. music scene. And since I was going to San Francisco Art Institute, everybody was in agreement to just come up there and we'll you know all live together and and, and uh, take it from there. So that's what we did. Did you did you have an idea what you hoped to get out of your time at the Art Institute? Um, sure. I mean, I, I wanted to improve my skills on painting, so I was majoring in painting. Uh, there was lots of other things offered, like sculpture and filmmaking and photography, humanities. There's lots of different things that were offered there, but. Um, I took the painting course and had the the head of the painting department was my teacher for four years. And I think I learned a lot from him. He was sort of an abstract, uh, he was sort of in the school of the Bay Area abstract. And coming from Arizona and doing a lot of graphic things in high school, like posters and things like that, I was a little bit more into the, the idea of maybe I should be at more of a commercial arts school. This is more of a fine art school. And he took my head and twisted it around a bunch, and made me open up. It made me open up a little bit, like I was getting in a little too, you know, too detailed or something when I first started. And then he said, you know, take all that stuff and just throw that out of the window and start new and try to do a different, different painting every day on the same canvas and that kind of stuff. And it would definitely freed freed me up. Although I did go back. <laughs> Because my next favorite teacher at the school was an airbrush teacher. He was the only teacher at the fine art school that was teaching airbrush. His name was Thomas Ackaway, and I'll never forget how meticulous he was. And everything was very, very precise. And so he taught Michael Cotton and I all the techniques for airbrushing. So my, my other teacher was just wanted to shun that. He just said, that is, stay away from all that commercial stuff. I said no, but I'm, you know, I want, I want to learn. I want to learn it all. So it was good. I worked. I worked for four years. Had some really good drawing teachers that were wonderful. Got to, you know, draw life models and stuff. And and uh, you know, I fell in love with a lot of art school girls. And you know, just had a great time. We did some of the early tubes shows there at the at the Art Institute, where we would dress up in some crazy space outfits and. We have some of the, the girl uh, artists, uh, student girls that were our friends, join in and kind of help with the production of the show and dance. And, you know, 
it led to the tubes, tubes productions, basically, everything that we were doing at the Art Institute. Um, so I would presume that you would have a major say in the theatricality of the tubes? I mean, is it greatly your influence because of your art background? Or is it a collaborative was, thing? Well, no, definitely collaborative. I mean, we were, we were, all, we were all throwing in ideas you know, at whenever we get together for rehearsing. You know, and we all grew up in Phoenix watching television. So everybody had uh, at least a television mind as far as theatrics goes. You know, we loved movies. We loved horror films. We all enjoyed comedy. You know, we all loved Danny Kaye movies. So whenever we were coming up with an idea for a bit or a song or a skit or something, everybody would be throwing in ideas. But, uh, you know, Michael and I would be the ones to, to make them visually, you know, happen. So we would come up with ideas. and Okay, we got to have a... A cowboy set. So we, you know, build the blow up cactuses and paint the backdrop. Paint the backdrop with uh, Mona, you know, uh, you know, the Montezuma's castle in the background and desert scenes, and you know, make costumes for feeds, cowboy feed. Come up with the blood bags for the, the dying scene, and just all kinds of stuff like that. It was just so much fun. You know, everything we we wanted to do, we would make and we would come up with these ideas. A lot of them were for, you know, noir movies and things that we had seen when we were growing up. I mean, really, so, there was... Yeah. Well, it was a collaborative effort. Every, everything, all the music and the, and the productions were all very collaborative. And then we met Kenny Ortega, who was super showbiz, and then he just made, he made all the choreographer, the choreography happen. And, uh, and had some great ideas you know from, from the get-go do you think i mean i as i said i saw that first tour and there was nothing like it like i you know there was there were people like alice cooper who also came from arizona but there were it wasn't like a different set every song or i mean it was a pretty elaborate theatrical presentation that you guys did do you think that and it was all on she's budget you know we never had it much you know it's all like my, my dad has a has a uh, working shop in the back you know we've, we've got some extra plywood we can make the set out of it was kind of like that never really had much i mean we, we did have the record company a and m they did put some money behind our tour and, and helped us with some of the some of the production budget but for the most part we you know we didn't have that much money to you know not like well especially not like today but i mean even even the stuff that Alice Cooper was doing, just more elaborate, probably more expensive than the stuff that we that we came up with. Right. Um, but at the same time, or even before, you were starting to do some studio gigs, and I don't know how that happened. Like, you were on Nicky Hopkins' first album, playing with some major heavyweights. Tell me, how did that happen? It was a shock. Uh, it was just a fluke. I... I, I uh... We were all living out, out at the beach in San Francisco at the beach house that we got in 1969. By like 1970, maybe 71, I had, uh, had met this girl who was living down the street with her boyfriend. And they, uh, the boyfriend worked for Steve Miller. We knew them and we started talking with them. We knew Steve Miller's roadies and things like that. And her name was uh, Linda Hunt. And... You know, we were pretty good friends, 
And then that was about it. After maybe a year, I heard from her, and she goes, well, I met Nicky Hopkins in um, Mill Valley. He's, he's working with the, uh, you know, with uh, Quicksilver Messenger Service, and he's looking to put a band together, and he's got a record deal. He's been working with the Rolling Stones and, and the Who and the Beatles and stuff. But he's looking for a band, and I remember that you were a great drummer, and do you want to go to England? <laughs> so I just said, okay. The tubes were like, wait a second. But we also, the tubes said, you know, but we also at that time we had another drummer. So we were a right. two-drummer band at the time. And I said, well, you know, let Bob, and thing with Bob McIntosh, who later sadly passed away from cancer um, at a very young age. But um, he said, well, it's okay. You, you can go do this thing. It sounds like a great opportunity. I'll, t- you know, I'll handle the drum chair while you're gone. So I went to England and uh, lived at Nikki's house. We recorded at Apple Studios. He had George Harrison, Nick Taylor, uh, Klaus Vorman, Ray Cooper, um, um, a, 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 sl- a bunch of other big guys that came in. Uh, but that was the, the main core band to do his solo record. And I was, you know, I was only 21 or 22 years old at the time. So I was, uh, I was in shock. You know, I had to hang out there with Mick Jagger, and I met Ringo at the Apple Studios, and I was playing drums with George Harrison. So I was, you know, I was like, I can't believe this. And when I went back home, back to the tubes, um, it was like, well, I'm glad to be back with them. I love them. So it continued on. And then there's, you know, other things happen, different sessions and stuff, but I'll let you ask me about those. Nicky Hopkins, did you ever actually audition or was it based on the say of this friend? No, no. In fact, it was funny. He just, um, as I recall, you know, it's a long time ago. I don't quite remember exactly how it happened. I know he bought me a set of drums. He goes, well, you'll need an instrument. Uh, And I said, well, yeah, I got my eye on this one over in Oakland. uh, One of those Acrolyte drum sets. They were one of the first clear, clear plastic sets. And I was like, you know, all into the visual thing at, the, at that point. I didn't care what they sounded like. They looked great. <laughs> so he bought me a full set of those drums. I shipped them to England and put them together in the recording studio and recorded that record on those drums and then came back and played them with the tubes for a bunch of years. On our first tour, um, our truck went under a low overpass in Chicago and broke about half of the drums. They smashed the drums. Apparently were up on the top of the truck. <laughs> uh, so those, those drums didn't last. But, um, yeah. Well, he obviously liked you because he did have you on the second album as well, did he not? That's true. So then I, you know, after I, uh, he, that record came out and it was, you know, not heralded as such a great success, but uh, he had uh, probably a two record deal or maybe a three record deal with, with Columbia. So we went back and this time we went back and we recorded at Stargroves which was Mick Jagger's house outside of London, out in the country, and uh, they had the Stones recording, uh, recording mobile truck parked in the back, and all the the leads were going into the living room, and I got to pick out a drum set from a little warehouse room on the side of the of the of the mansion that was holding a whole bunch of uh, Charlie Watts's drums, so I just got to pick out a drum set. And, it up and played it. I, I, never, I never told Charlie that. I, I only met him once, but I never told him I used his. But I love Charlie Watts. He's a great drummer. 
as as Ringo. I'm mean, very inspired by both those guys uh, at a young age. I've obviously at a young age for yourself that you know you were getting a lot of studio gigs and playing with a lot of different people. People uh, on top of that, Tommy Bolin would be another one. Um, mm -hmm. But just like when I look at your discography, like it's it's pretty impressive. Yeah, thanks. Yeah. I, I, so right around the same time that I was going over to England, I had started the band Journey. It wasn't called Journey yet. It was called the Golden Gate Rhythm Section. And it was, uh, it was brought to my attention by Herbie Herbert, who was their, their manager. And he was actually managing the tubes, uh, co-managing the tubes. And he said, I've got, the, I've got this idea. I want to run by you. We're going to have a studio group, kind of like the Wrecking Crew or something in San Francisco. It's going to be you, Neil Sean, um, Ross Valerie, Greg Raleigh, because he had been working with Santana at the time. And he said, we got, uh, we got those two guys from Santana and we're going to, we're going to start a, re a recording band. You Are you interested? And I went, sure. That sounds great. So we got together and we started writing music and everybody just kind of fell in love with each other. And at the same time, I was still, you know, Still hot and heavy with writing songs and, and trying to pick them up productions with the tubes, so I didn't end up staying with with the, the band Journey, but I did do their first the first two live shows with them, and it was um, opening for Santana at Winterland in 1973, going into '74. So we'd already been you know sort of writing songs and doing demos, uh, recording at uh, Wally Hyder's recording studio in San Francisco for the last, you know, couple of years. And then did those those two shows. We did uh, Winterland, uh, New Year's Eve, and then New Year's Day, we flew to Hawaii and played the Crater Festival. <laughs> and that was, that was it for, for me and Journey at that, at that point. And I went back home, and uh, shortly after that, our other drummer passed away, and that was just, uh, just left me as, as the drummer, the only drummer in the tubes. And, we started uh, doing a lot of shows around San Francisco, and we got a record deal. I don't know; it just goes on and on. <laughs> I said I got to write a book. You should. You really should, because I don't. I mean, I think a lot of people know you as the drummer for the Tubes. They might know you as the drummer who's worked with Todd Rundgren a lot, but yeah. like it's it's a pretty impressive list of people that you've worked with over the years. Yeah, thank you. What do you think it is about your drumming that has attracted such attention from other musicians? Uh, probably that I don't really know what I'm doing, but I pick up on what everybody else is doing and make it sound much better than they possibly imagine. Because I don't read music. I don't, don't really know how to uh, chart out stuff. I mean, I, I do my own little, you know, things that I can, only I can read. <laughs> right. Um, if I'm having a session or something, I need to figure out how many bars there are, how many sections there are the bridge or the verses and all that kind of stuff but all, all that stuff is, is pretty easy but I don't know I just think it's about the feel you know I just have all, always had a, a really good feel and, and, I, and I know it I, mean, I, I can feel it myself and I just I mean you know, automatically I think of somebody like Todd Rundgren who is one of the great producers of rock music and obviously he saw something in you <laughs> exactly you're wearing a Todd Rundgren t-shirt 
But, you know, working, you probably saw something in you working with the tubes. I would presume that was the first time you guys started working together when you produced the tubes album. Yeah, uh, yeah, it wasn't the first time we'd actually, um, I had actually, he knew me as an artist before a drummer. I painted some, uh, some of his stage outfits in the early seventies. Um, I knew his, uh, I knew his, uh, his costume designer, his dresser, a guy named Nicky Nicholson. And they came to town one day and he goes, Todd's got a big photo session in a couple of days. Can you paint this outfit for him and just, you know, make, make some crazy. Cause I was just really was kind of just starting to, to airbrush a lot. And my friend Nikki saw that stuff and he goes, Oh, you got to paint some stuff for Todd. So I did, we, I did. And, uh, he loved the stuff. Didn't get to meet him at that point, but I saw the show and I saw him wearing the stuff that I was, that I painted. And then later in New York, um, met him again and then I got it and he goes oh I hear you're a drummer too you want to come up and play so I played with him at the bottom line I went I can't remember the song I think it was hello it's me or something but or maybe can we still be friends but it was at the bottom line and uh, that's the first time I really ever talked to the guy but then the next time I met him he was good friends with another friend of ours who had an art gallery and um, he followed the tubes to England uh, we got him to join us uh, at Nebworth. That was in like 1978, I think. Um, and he came out and sang uh, Baba O'Reilly because it was the day Keith Moon died. So we paid homage to Keith Moon and we did, we did a Who medley. We did a Baba O'Reilly leading into The Kids Are All Right. And Todd sang it with us and played guitar. And then uh, after that, that was 78, uh, and then in 79, we asked him to produce our album, and that was the remote control album that we did. And, and then you've had this musical relationship with him ever since. Yeah, ever since. And then, and then uh, a couple years later, uh, we did two albums with David Foster after the remote control album with Todd. He got real busy doing, you know, Utopia and a bunch of other stuff. So we got... Um, Oh, and that's when we got, we actually got dropped from A&M after, not after that record, but yeah, it was after that record, we got dropped from A&M, and we got picked up by Capitol Records, and that's when we got David Foster as the producer, and did two albums for with David Foster, and then that ended, and we went back to Todd uh, for our third Capitol record, and that was called Love Bomb, so that's what we sort of, we sort of uh, reinitiated our friendship with Todd at that point. And then he, shortly after that, that was in like 84, 85, and then in 86, he got the job to produce XTC's album, and so he asked me to play on that, so I started working with him. And where is your art at this point? What are you doing with your art, other than some musical things? <laughs> well, Michael Cotton and I were still continuing to do um, lots of murals. We did murals all over the world, um, different different kinds of murals, I mean, um, and stage designs and stage sets for lots of different artists. I would have to look at, I mean, I, ha I would have to look at my own website <laughs> right now <laughs> to put it all in perspective uh, chronologically and uh, as far as uh, the dates and stuff. But yeah, we were, we were hardly hard, hard working 
and, and um, hardly ever found time to, you know, breathe. We were doing from one thing to the next, touring and, uh, and building stage sets and designing stuff for lots of different people. The, the murals that you do, and I don't know how it happens that you get to do this all over the world, but when you decide, because I'm always fascinated, I know it's just a painting, but when it's on that such a level, when it's that scale, is the way you approach it very differently than what you would paint on a canvas? Um, I suppose you approach it differently because you'd have to scale it up to grandiose um, you know, ratios. But um, you still approach it. You still do the drawing, you know, to scale on a, on a building, on, on, you know, on a, on a drawing tablet or a computer. Back then it was a drawing tablet, and now it's a computer. But um, yeah, it's just uh, it's just all scale. You know? Scaffolding is a lot more work to do something on large, such a large scale. I mean, you need probably more assistance than you would doing a painting by yourself. It's, it's big production. Just turned into a big production. It's impressive. And how? So how do you get those gigs around the world? Is it word of mouth? Yeah, a lot of it was word of mouth. A lot of it was just friends that had had yeah that had uh, had job. Opportunities that they could turn us on to, our directors, architects, lighting de designers—you know, just a lot of different people that we knew that may knew of our work—and they would recommend us, or you know, we would have to do bids and do presentations to different people and get the job. And so that's a lot of the way we we, we did it. And then we had, you know, we had our portfolios and we. Pound the pound the pavement. We'd go around to record companies. We'd go around to department stores. We'd do you know we got a, a really good job with Macy's for years and years, and iMagnons as well for all of their you know even seasonal things like big Christmas things. We did these big murals all over the place and set designs and stuff in, within the, the buildings, mostly in New York, some in L.A., some in San Francisco. Um, so yeah, it was just a, I would just say word of mouth, you know, mostly because, you know, we had a brochure. We would mail them out, do mailers. And... I guess what I don't understand is how you prioritize. I mean, on top of getting together with the tubes on and off, you're touring with Todd <laughs> Rundgren on and off. You also spent a lot of time with Jefferson Starship. You've also yeah, done yeah. other studio work. And, and then you're pursuing your artwork and, and God knows how many other musical projects, like All You Need Is Love. And and I think you did the Gilmore Project, which is the music of David Gilmore. Like you seem to have a lot of things. How do you prioritize everything? You know, it's not easy, I've got to say. Especially the older I get, you know, the slower I'm moving. Uh, I just have to go, let's see, what's the easiest thing I can get away with and still be creative? <laughs> Uh, no, it's it's true. I mean, I have to I have to prioritize on certain things, and a lot of it has to go. I call myself a gigolo, because it's like whoever asks me first, I'm going to be dedicated to them. You know, it's almost like people have to wait in line. You know, if you want to use me for this or that, I have to do this first, or maybe I don't have to do this first. I'd rather do that because it's much more interesting. 
this other person's going to have to wait. You know, and it goes back and forth like that. I just say that, um, you know, I enjoy doing what I do, and I, I love what I do, so I just I try to I try to build a schedule that I can handle, that, um, that I like. I, you know, a lot of people use um, agents and, and people that kind of do that stuff for them. They say, they say yes and no, and they deal with the money situations. I've just never been able to do that or find somebody that I felt confident enough to do the things that I really wanted, wanted to do. I end up doing a bunch of stuff that I didn't really want to do. I had some friends that tried to help me a few times and they just never worked out. So just try to handle it myself. And and Michael Cotton was a you know, he was he's always been a, a, a mentor to me. Just his work work ethic and his genius. Just his genius has always been so inspiring to me and I was always so glad to be a partner of his in our music and our in our our art business. And uh, yeah, I follow his lead a lot too. He had a lot of contacts through different different uh, circles all around. He lived in Manhattan most of, uh, most of the '80s, and then and then and, and continues to. So he has lots of connections in New York, big, the big city, and Los Angeles too. He still works a lot with Kenny Ortega, doing big production work for all, all of Kenny Ortega's clients, and Walt Disney, and, you know Michael Jackson. Michael Jackson was alive, all that stuff. So I was, um, I was just always sort of, not, I don't say riding on his coattails, but he was, he was my guiding light, Michael Cotton, and he still is. Right now, we're we're designing and building a house in Morocco, and he's spending much of his time in, in Morocco right now. He's got a bunch of friends there, and has for the last fifty years. And so we're going to go over and have make an art colony. Uh, you know, it's like a, almost like a residency there that our friends can come and we can make art and music. Wow. Um, yeah. I, I guess it also speaks to who you are, that you have these really long-term relationships, whether it be Todd or Roger Steen or mm-hmm. Michael. I mean, there's a guy right there. I, you know... Michael Cotton and Roger Steen are the two biggest inspirations. Roger Steen is just the most amazing uh, musician and, and friend that I've had since a sophomore in high school. In 1965, I met him and we had a Beatle band called the Bards. And we, I've been playing with him ever since. Never left him. And we're still, we're still hanging in there as the tubes. And many, many years later, you're now doing a tour with a Beatles tribute thing. Isn't that funny? Uh, and, well, I already did one with Todd and Christopher Cross and uh, a couple other, oh, uh, Denny Lane and uh, Joey Mullen. We did that in 2022. That was pretty fun. Uh, back in uh, 15 years ago, I did another one with a lot of those same musicians. We did all of Sgt. Pepper's. So I've been doing Beatles. I've always loved the Beatles. So, and I got to play with one you know, personally. Got to go to his house, hang out with him. We stayed in his apartment for two months in Mayfair, George Harrison. I'm talking. Yeah. About. He wasn't there, but I got the vibes. <laughs> the guy, you know, swarming around me when I was sleeping in one of his bedrooms. So, um, yeah, it's amazing. So yeah, I, I have a couple tribute bands. 
It's the same guy that, that put together the version of the Starship that I played in uh, for 18 years. Named Michael Gaiman, and he is an entrepreneur, booking agent, manager type that uh, that puts together these these groups of you know, eclectic kind of groups of musicians, and um, started with the Jefferson Starship using uh, uh, Jack Cassidy, um, Paul Kantner, and Marty Ballon as the, the three members that were originally in those bands, and then adding some other people, including me. And then um, in the later years, he had a, a, a Pink Floyd tribute band called Blue Floyd. I got to play with that uh, in that. And now this is the newest version of that that kind of an idea. Uh, it's not really, he doesn't call it a tribute band exactly, but he calls it a, uh, I don't know what he calls it. <laughs> exploring, exploring the music of Pink Floyd is what it is. So it's kind of musicians that sort of like to break out of the mold of just being a copy band, you know, and take the music and take it in different directions and stuff like that. I think that's what this Beatle thing is going to be. We've only done one rehearsal. We are supposed to do another week of rehearsal before that tour starts, and I think we're just going to see where it takes us. We all are big Beatle fans. We have a list of at least 35, 40 songs that we're choosing from. And the thing is, it's, uh, it's going to be uh, the, the idea of uh, the Beatles coming to America. It'll be their uh, 60th anniversary of that, 1964. 60th anniversary of uh, Beatles coming to America. And if I'm not mistaken, that was around the time you got your first full drum kit? That was close to the time, yes, 64. Uh, I was building the drum set, yeah. I got the snare drum first, then I got a bass drum. You know, it's like mowing yards, trying to save up the money to go to the drum store and get one more piece for that drum set. <laughs> I got a hi-hat! Yeah. And that drum set was too mishmash, so I, I, I bought a full kit of you know, all the same matching drums, 65, 66 maybe. And goes on from there. And then I got endorsed by Yamaha in the early, early 70s, and I've been playing Yamaha drums ever since. My little endorsement for the product. Thank you, Yamaha. Um, I probably need to wrap this up, but like, can we finish off with this album that you're working on with about colors? Yes. Tell me, yes, what, yes. how did it start? What's it called? When will it be out? Well, um, will, when, when, when will it be out is a good question. I don't think we might have to do another one of these podcasts for when that comes out. I am shooting for it to come out next year. I've been working on it for 10 years, but the idea came to me from my sister. She was, you know, 10 years older than me. She hit the beatnik era uh, when I was seven or eight, and she started playing the music of Ken Nordine, who was a uh, spoken word um, artist from Chicago. And he did these records called Word Jazz. And I remember when I was a little kid, loving, God, I love this record. It's so cool. It's just this guy talking about, you know, his midnight snack. When he gets up in the middle of the night, he goes to the refrigerator, and he chews on a carrot. And, and I just loved that. It was like a, you know, a little bedtime story or something. And so he, he came out with a record called Colors in like maybe 63, 62, something like that which I never heard. I always heard his other records, but I had never heard that before. 
And my sister said, you should do um, like a, your take on Ken Rodin's colors. You know, just don't even do the same thing. Just take the idea and and make it all your own. You know, make it your own, but you know, make him yeah, a tribute to him. And so that's what I'm doing. And I, uh, I started with just colors and then the idea that we're was to include a passion with each color and then a month with each color and then like a birthstone with each color and uh, just like that. So each one of the colors, I now have 14 tracks, 14 colors, 14 passions and too many months so I can't make a calendar but I can make a calendar with 14 uh, dates on it. <laughs> or an extra bonus calendar. <laughs> uh, anyway, it's called Prairie Prince's Colors and Passions, and I'm hoping it's going to be released in 2024 if I can find a record uh, label. I've got a few ideas under my under my belt, but uh, I've, I've talked to a lot of the, the people these days that are putting out products like that. They say, you know, it's, it's not the same as it ever was. I said, I just want to do some kind of a, almost like a limited edition art set so the, the thing would come out in vinyl, colored vinyl. It will have prints of all the illustrations I've done for each one of the songs, which I've, I've done, paintings for each one of the scenarios. And um, it'll be like an artist box set, collect, collector's item. And then, you know, and then I'll put it out as you know, probably first, just on the Internet with a, a cheap video or something like that, just to get it going. But I haven't gotten to that point yet. I'm still trying to finish it. Get the last collaborate, collaborate uh, people that were collaborating on it, and get it mixed, and then I'll take it from there. Is it spoken word or music? It's uh, spoken word, and each one of the tracks is dominated by a certain percussion instrument. Like green is mostly conga drums. I do play trap drums along with it at a certain point, but it's each one of them kind of as a theme sort of starts with a percussion, different percussion instrument. And um, and then I start talking about the color, the passion. I got background singers singing on it. I can't sing very well, so I, get, I heard some background singers. So there's a lot of music. And then a lot of people playing, you know, a wild guitar. I got Buckethead on there. I got, I have, uh, I just got a Hugh Cornwell from The Stranglers. Uh, I got Todd Rundgren on it. I've got all the tubes on it. I've got just Starship members on it. You know, it, it goes on and on. And, it, and it's been like, you know, this work in progress for at least 10 years now. I'm actually starting it. Uh, the, you know, the idea came 20 years ago. <laughs> My sister's still waiting for it to come out. She's, uh, she's a, a great supporter of mine. My sister, Leslie. And, uh, I'm dedicating it all to her. Well, it sounds like a great project. Um, yeah. As I said, I, I had an idea of who you were based on my connection with your music, but in doing this research, it's I'm quite impressed at the, the music that you've done over the years and the people you've worked with over the years, in addition to the great art that you've done. Well, thank you. So thank you so much for sharing that with thank me. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. And maybe we'll catch you up, uh, catch you up in Canada. Well, I'll definitely check that out. All right. Thank you very much. Everybody.